Thank you very much. Let's, um, let's pray again, shall we, as we look at God's word. Father, thank you so much that you want to be made known to us. You want us to, to know you and to love you. And thank you that you sent your son, Jesus. And thank you that you gave us your, your word, the Bible, as well. I pray this morning, as uh, maybe we've got lots on our minds, or, or maybe we haven't, I don't know, but uh, help us to be able to yeah, look at your word and get excited about you, Jesus. Show yourself to us. Amen. Great. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Sim, as John said, and this morning we're going to be continuing in our series in John. Uh, but first of all, let me tell you a, a short story. Um, a few years ago now, um, my now wife, Cyril, but we weren't married at the time, got offered her first job offer. And it was, uh, we were very excited, a job at Southampton Hospital. And um, so I said, oh, let's celebrate. And I uh, pretended to sort of put together some, some visual, very casual plans for this celebration. Oh, let's just do something, you know, let's just kind of see how it goes kind of thing. And didn't tell her too much about it. But actually, I was meticulously planning the intricate details of what we were going to do. And then gradually it became apparent to her something more is going on here. We went to Winchester and I'd laid out lots of surprises and treats and stuff like that. And then, you know, she's probably starting to imagine something's going to happen. And then, oh, we just happened to end up on St. Catherine's Hill with a lovely view. And then I'm now down on one knee. And, you know, kind of things are going on. Um, and so, of course, we wanted to celebrate her job offer. But there was something bigger going on, wasn't there? Something else had been planned. And we'll come back to that thought a bit later. So... We've been doing our um, series going through John. If you've been here the last uh, few months, you'll know. And uh, in the last few weeks, actually, it's been, it's been kind of kicking off a bit, hasn't it? Because um, the religious leaders at the time started to get really wound up by Jesus, really frustrated um, by Jesus, yes. And they're increasingly jealous. First of all, there's all these crowds that are following Jesus. And then also, um, he started to, and this is a big claim and a big deal at the time, he started to claim he's God. And so that's really uh, wound them up. So let's recap what happened last week. If you were here uh, last week or you've listened online, you'll know that we looked at Lazarus. Now, Lazarus was uh, someone that uh, Jesus loved and Lazarus wasn't very well, so his um, sisters, Martha and Mary, went to see Jesus to tell him so. And so let's look at that. It's on page 1078 of your Bibles. Um, So it's uh, John 11, verses 3 to 7. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, This illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. That's interesting, isn't it? So, so Jesus didn't go back straight away, as you would expect. 
Why is that? You know, surely he could, he could go and he could look after Lazarus. No, he tells us he did that for God's son, that's Jesus himself's glory, so he may be glorified. Verse 14. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So here Jesus is clearing it up. He's saying, you know, Lazarus is in fact dead. But wait a minute, he's saying he's glad that he's dead. He's glad. So that they may believe. And then a bit further down, um, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus is saying he is the resurrection and the life. And then a bit further down, 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Then down to verse 43. When he, said, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were strapped with, lin- with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Okay, so we can see two amazing things about Jesus. Well, loads more, but two, two that, we could, that I can pick up on now. The first is that Jesus wants to see God's glory. You know, he could have done it in a different way, but he delayed. He waited for Lazarus to, be, to, to die, and then he said, let's go, and, um, and he heals Lazarus. He does this because he wants God, his Father, to be glorified. And we too, as followers of Jesus, if we are followers of Jesus, that's something that should challenge us. We too should want to see God being glorified in our lives, in the way that we go about our work, in the way that we study at school. How can we be pointing people to God's glory rather than you know, us, ourselves looking great? And secondly, we see something else about Jesus. He gives life, doesn't he? In this passage, he gives physical life to Lazarus. But this is also symbolic of the life that he offers us. You know, in this very passage, he says, um, I'm going to read it again, verse 25. Oh, sorry, you missed the photo. <laughs> oh, well. Um, great, where's that? Yes, uh, 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus is saying that whoever trusts in him will have that eternal life. And as we've seen um, throughout our series in John, that's what Jesus is actually about. We've seen it time and time again. He's giving life, isn't it? Isn't he? Sorry. Jesus is life-giving. Great. So that's our first point. Second point, the greatest substitute. So let's keep reading. Uh, 45 to 53. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and uh, Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to see the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. 
What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is the man performing many signs. If we, let our, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Cephas, spoke up. Uh, sorry, Cephas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the sacred children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So the plotting to kill Jesus, uh, from this moment onwards, starts to grow more and more, really. Um, He can't move around freely anymore. Um, And we see that the religious rulers, they acknowledge in this passage that Jesus is doing miraculous signs. You know, John calls them signs for a reason. You know, the latest one being that Lazarus has come back from the dead. But they're still not willing to consider that actually maybe Jesus is speaking the truth. Even though he's brought someone back from the dead, no. And this is a warning for us too, isn't it? Are you missing it too? Are you beginning to see more and more things seem to increasingly suggest that Jesus really is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God? But are you refusing to believe it? You know, we have signs too. The Pharisees are jealous of this attention that Jesus is receiving. They're worried about their temple, they're worried about the nation, they're worried about their status, they're worried about what the Romans are going to do. But here we have this this great moment in this passage, don't we, where Cephas, who John reminds us is the high priest that year, he says this incredible thing, you know, even much more profound than he realizes, you know, much more meaningful than he's aware. He's worried about the nation of Israel and the temple, and he's worried about this momentum that Jesus is gathering. And so he says, well, surely it'd be better if one person dies than the whole nation. How right he is, yeah? He doesn't even realize what he's saying. He's trying to say, surely it'd be easier if we take him out of the picture, but he doesn't realize the weight of what he's saying. There's a real much deeper meaning His sentence is actually really prophetic, isn't it? John picks up on it and explains it. It's much better for Jesus to die than the whole nation. This is what we believe as followers of Jesus. He died taking our place. He's the substitute for the Jewish nation. And as John points out, for us too. The whole nations. Having rebelled against God... Our rightful punishment is death, but Jesus is our substitute. His death on the cross takes our place, and that's really exciting. And then let's look at um, the rest of our passage, the greater plan. Um, so, Sorry, before we read that, let me introduce it. So we're beginning to see already that there's something bigger going on, isn't there? 
you can see how the Pharisees uh, understood stuff at a certain level, but they couldn't see that actually something bigger was beginning to take place. This passage is full of irony. Irony that the religious leaders who claimed to want to serve God couldn't see that he was right in front of them. Irony that Cephas didn't relieve how right he was when he said that it was better for one man to die than the whole nation. He even claimed, did you see that, that the other religious leaders knew nothing at all. That's awkward, isn't it? There's irony that the religious leaders, you know, it says in verse 53, they started to plot Jesus' death. No, they haven't. Jesus' death has been planned way before this. You, know, right, you just need to read the Bible right from Genesis. When they think they started to casually plot, no, forget it. This has been way bigger than this. And so we'll, meet, we'll see a bit more irony in the next bit we're going to read as well, too. So verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved around publicly among the people of Judea, Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village named Ephraim, when he he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. So John tells us that um, this happens at almost the time of the Jewish Passover. Now, the Passover is an exciting festival for the Jews because it's when when they celebrate being rescued Uh, from slavery in Egypt. We read about that in the book of Exodus. And it's exciting for us to to be able to connect the Old Testament and the New Testament and see how things uh, link up, connect, and not just link up and connect, but actually point us to Jesus. So we're going to have a little flick through now and have a look at Exodus 12 together. The people of... um, You're already flicking your pages, I can see. So it's page 68. Let me just tell you what's happening. So the people of Israel, so there's a God's people... Um, they are in slavery in Egypt, and um, they want to obviously um, leave. But Pharaoh, so yeah, the, the Pharaoh of Egypt is saying no. And so, what God is doing is He's bringing these different uh, plagues. And we're just going to to read about the final one now. And Pete is going to read it for us. Thank you, Pete. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. 
Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses they, where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire, with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Great. So a bit earlier, we saw that Jesus was the the substitute for the nation. But here we see that a lamb, a male lamb with no blemish, was the substitute for the Jewish people back in Exodus. The lamb in Exodus was a picture of what Jesus would do much later. And just like the lamb's blood was a sign that the Jews belonged to Jesus, and so they put it on the door to show that they were being passed over, Jesus' blood is a sign on his followers that he he is our substitute. Now let's get back to to John 11. So just as the um, Jews in approaching Exodus, sorry, in approaching the Passover, They were asked to go and find a blameless male lamb to kill in their place. So too, we see in this passage that we've read that the Jewish leaders in the build-up to the Passover, in verse 56, are looking for Jesus to kill him, our own blameless lamb. The parallels are exciting, aren't they? Their question is an interesting one. You know, Is Jesus not coming to the ceremony of cleansing? But of course, we know that that Jesus didn't need cleansing. He is blameless. There's a sense of irony that that these religious leaders who were doing um, cleansing rituals in preparation for the Passover, while at the same time trying to kill Jesus, the Son of God. They long to be clean, yet the person they kill is the one that can actually really make them clean. We get this, this sense of excitement, do we? There's something much bigger on, much bigger going on here, isn't there? The religious leaders think they're just making small plans to kill Jesus, but it's part of something huge. It's exciting. He is to be that substitute that Cephas mentioned. He is to be the real Passover lamb, even greater than the one in Exodus, the one pointed to in Exodus. Can you see how everything is coming together? A bit like my engagement story, or like a detective drama. At the end, the detectives, they tell you how all the pieces come together, don't they? They sit there and you go, ah, oh, I remember that. I remember why he picked up, ah, oh, that, that, oh, that's why he did that. That's why he did that. 
Or like a game of chess where you're watching and it looks like someone is about to take a rook and you think, wow, that's nice, he's about to take a rook. And he takes the rook and it's checkmate and you're like, oh, whoa, he'd been working all this out. You know, this is like something amazing. Everything is coming together. But the Pharisees don't see it. I wonder if we might be in danger of making that mistake too. You know, we live our lives as if, you know, in a certain way. Do we forget how it's all connected, how God is the one that's in control, how we're all part of God's big picture? So, we've seen this morning, we've seen how Jesus is concerned for his Father's glory and he's life-giving too. By believing, by believing in him, we can have life. And we've seen that he's our substitute, our Passover lamb, that it's better for him to die than for the whole nation. And we've seen that Jesus' death is this amazing plan. Lots of things coming together, all pointing to it. Let's pray, shall we? Wow, Jesus, we are blown away by how incredible your death is in that sense. It's how amazingly you planned it, how everything is is pulling together. We thank you for what it means that you're our Passover lamb. We we have messed up and and have rejected you, and yet uh, by your blood you save us. You're our substitute. And we thank you that you are life-giving as well. We thank you for what uh, Lazarus of death teaches us. Amen.